chapter left here in our study in the book of 2 Timothy. And uh, we're going to actually divide this up into two weeks here. Because there's a lot of stuff going on. We want to make sure that we cover this effectively. We want to make sure we get all the details taken care of. Let's do the smart thing and have a quick word of prayer before we jump into this. Heavenly Father, just thankful to be here this morning. Just pray that you would be with the message and be with the teaching. And pray you'd go before all things. And Lord, uh, give us eyes and ears to hear what you have to say in this word. And as always, Lord, you teach and we listen, Lord. And thank you for that time of worship. Thank you for that special. And just thank you for the time of fellowship to be here with uh, friends and family. In your name, amen. All right, if you haven't been with us here in our book, in our study here through the book of 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy is Paul's swan song, the last book that he wrote. Just always remember, writing this from prison, writing this from the cell of a Roman prison. He knows that his execution is imminent. He knows that his death is at hand. So these are the final words of the Spirit that he wants to say to the church. He's writing to his young protege, Timothy, and these are the final statements through the Spirit that he wants to say. Now, we've covered this before, but our main focus, our, our key verse in this book, is actually found back in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, where it says, Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. The good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. And we talked about those phrases, hold fast and keep. That Paul is not just preaching this, he's living it. He is saying that in the midst of a difficult time in a difficult world, hold fast to the truth of God. That's the key stuff here. Now, once again, he's living it. Writing this from inside of a prison cell, knowing that his death is coming. It's a difficult world we live in. We hit that last week a little bit. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 3, but know that in this, the last days perilous times will come. We talked about how that word perilous means stressful, difficult. We live in stressful, difficult days. There's no way around that. So now the question is, how do we hold fast to the truth of Christianity? How do we hold fast to God? How do we endure through these difficult days? I'm willing to bet for some of you, it was a struggle to even get here this morning. Some of you probably have a big week coming up. You have things going on. You're worked up about it. You're nervous. You're anxious. You're worried. You live in a perilous world and perilous times. How do you hold fast? What encouragement can we get from this? And I hope that's what we get today is an encouragement as we go through this. Now, the first couple of chapters here of 2 Timothy, I don't want to use the word lighthearted, but they've been a little bit more lighthearted. Some greetings, some um, welcomes. Hey, I know that I'm at the end. Uh, we talked a little bit about just some theology stuff. Chapter 3 got a little more serious, end time stuff. Chapter 4, it's a pretty serious chapter. You have to remember, these 22 verses that we're going to go through these next couple of weeks are the last verses recorded by Paul before his execution. Now think about that. If you're in that position, you're sitting here in this Roman prison cell waiting your death, what would you have to say? What would the Lord use you for to speak through? And that's what we have to look at. So, the serious tone, verse 1, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who would judge the living and the dead, it is appearing in his kingdom. That word charge, it's a serious word. It's a solemn word. He's saying, pay attention. It reminds me almost as a parent when you want to get your kid's attention. You get down there and say, look into my eyes. You're not angry with them, you're not upset with them, but you have to tell them something very important, very serious, and you want to make sure that they are paying attention. So Paul's final chapter here, he's saying, listen up. I charge you, therefore, this is a serious thing, and the serious thing that I'm telling you in verse 1 is you will stand before the judge, Jesus Christ. Now, is that not a pretty serious statement? You're going to stand before God. You're going to stand before the Lord in judgment. Now, before someone jumps on me here, you're going to stand before the Lord in judgment of one of two ways. If you're born again and saved, 
He will stand before the Lord in judgment, something called the judgment seat of Christ. This is not a judgment of salvation. This is a judgment of works. I look at it as almost a job performance review. You're born again. You're saved. Your salvation is not in question. But you're standing before the Lord, and he says, what did you do with the years, the times, abilities, and gifts that I gave you down on this earth? How did you use that for me? That's what believers go through. Non-believers go through something in Revelation 19 called the great white throne judgment, where the non-believers stand before the Lord, and Jesus basically says, okay, plead your case. Why should I let you into heaven? You didn't accept me as your Lord and Savior. You didn't take my sacrifice on the cross. Why should I let you into heaven? And they can give some account of, why well, I was a good person. I helped all ladies across the street. I was moral, etc. And none of that matters. What matters most is, were you born again and saved? So we will all stand before Christ. As a non-believer, you stand before him in judgment of eternity of heaven and hell. As a believer, we stand before him almost as a job performance review, if you want to look at it from that perspective. But we all stand before Christ. With this mindset, hopefully this spurs us on in how we live and how we act down on this world. I hope this spurs us on to be the people that God has called us to be. Turn, if you will, to 1 Peter chapter 4. Let's build on this for a little bit. 1 Peter 4. As you're going to 1 Peter 4, there's a couple verses in Romans that I just want to share. In Romans chapter 2... It says all secret things will be revealed before God. Have you ever thought about that? All secret things will be revealed before God. Now, that can be kind of a scary thought, can't it? All secret things will be revealed before Jesus Christ. And also says in Romans 14 that we must all give an account to Christ. Now, look at it from this perspective. When you stand before Jesus, if you're standing before him as your Lord and Savior, I hope there's not the fear. Now, there's a respect because it's God. But that's your brother in the Lord in Christ. The Bible says that our Father is our Heavenly Father. I hope when we stand before him, it's more of a standing before our dad, our father, and we run into the arms of Christ. But once again, as a non-believer, standing before the Lord, that's a scary thing. In fact, the book of Hebrews says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. This is not a hellfire and brimstone message to scare you. This is a message of reality and a fact. Paul, in his final letter here, in his final chapter, he starts out the chapter by saying, Guys, you're going to stand before Jesus. So as you stand before Jesus, are you ready for that? Are you prepared for that? 1 Peter chapter 4, let's go ahead and look at verse 1. It says, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, remember that phrase, suffered, we'll get back to that, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness and lust and drunkenness and revelries and drinking parties and abominable idolatries. Now, doesn't that describe some of us? Now, I mean, have you ever stopped and looked at your life and you look there at verse 3? Man, haven't I wasted enough of my time and lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Basically, what Peter is writing here is, you've wasted enough of your life. Maybe it was a few years. Maybe it's a few decades. Maybe it's still going on. Peter says, you have to stand before Christ. And so therefore, since you have to stand before Christ, verse 2, don't do those things anymore. Give them up. Time to let go of them. Because look at verse 5. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Once again, this is not something to scare somebody. This is somebody to bring a reality to you. We have to stand before the Lord. And as you stand before the Lord, verse 3, very simply put in my translation, as I would word it, haven't we wasted enough time doing dumb things? Look at verse 4. In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. Have you ever noticed that? Maybe some of you lived your life in verse 3. You had the lewdness, the lust, the drunkenness, the revelries, the drinking parties, etc. So then when you got born again and saved, now, verse 4, they think you're strange. Isn't that interesting? They think you're strange. Now, I find it fascinating. I look at verse 3, and I don't mean this in a judgmental way, but if I see somebody living their life in verse 3, I think they're strange. 
They look at me and say, okay, you're a pastor of a church, you don't do anything in verse 3. Well, we think you're strange. Isn't that the way it kind of goes? I always tell people, when you first get saved and you start moving out of the verse 3 territory, when you start letting go of those things in your past, those people that you used to call friends, those people that you used to call brothers, really aren't going to want to hang around you much anymore. Because why? Now that you've found Jesus, now that you've found religion, now that you've got God, you're the weird one. You're the strange one. Well, you know, isn't it interesting that 2,000 years ago when the Spirit led Peter to put pen to paper in verse 4, Peter says they're going to think you're weird. But yet, at the same time, God says, verse 5, who are you giving an account to? You're not giving an account to your friends. You're not giving an account to your co-workers, your family. You're giving an account to Jesus Christ. So therefore, you have to stop and say, who am I trying to please in this world? Who am I trying to please? Look at verse 6. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they may be judged accordingly to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. Peter comes out and says, it's not that we forget them. Hey, they're strange, they're weird, they're out there living a sinful, lustful life. No, we go, verse 6, we preach the gospel to them because they may be dead now, but the goal is to see them alive in Christ. This is the problem with Christianity. We live in verse 3, so then we get saved, verse 4. We realize we have to give an account in verse 5, but then we skip verse 6. Well, I'm not going to talk to them anymore. Wait a second. The most powerful tool that God gave you is your changed life in Jesus. I'm not saying go back and hang out with them and purposely put yourself in that situation, but part of the reason you got saved is so that therefore, verse 6, you can go preach to those people that need to hear about Christ. We have to give an account before God, and part of that account is what did we do with the time and abilities that God gave us, and when we, we want to be able to say, Lord, I preached for you, I served you, I ministered for you. So that's the first point that Paul is trying to say here in 2 Timothy. We will stand before Christ, either as a born-again believer or as an unsaved person. We will stand before Christ to give an account. With that mindset, what are we supposed to do? Jump back to verse 2, if you will, of 2 Timothy 4. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you, be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of evangelists, fulfill your ministry. Now, you know one of my big things out here is God's word. And this is why Paul, in his final chapter, in his final verses, when he says you're going to stand before God and be judged, what does he say verse 2? Preach the word. That's the first thing he tells him to do is preach the word. That is, shows the vital importance of God's word in a church and also in an individual. That word preach literally means to proclaim. It means to herald. It means that we as believers and as a church need to be constantly preaching God's word and presenting the truth of God's word. That's the first thing he told him to do. Now, the problem is all of us know this. We've gotten desensitized to it. Yeah, I know. I need to be in the word. Yeah, I know. We go through the word. I got it. I never take that for granted. That is what changes lives. Turn if we go to Isaiah 55. This is an important passage on knowing and understanding God's word. Isaiah 55. It's so vital to understand the importance of teaching and preaching God's word. Isaiah 55. One of the first things, when I first started coming out to Harvest 18 years ago, is it just blew me away the first time I heard the verse-by-verse teaching of God's Word. I thought, this is unbelievable. I absolutely loved it, and that's one of the things I've always loved about Calvary Chapel, is that verse-by-verse teaching of God's Word. One of the little catchphrases they use is, simply teach the Word of God simply. I love that. I love it that you just get into God's Word, and those black and white letters on the page just jump out at you, and they're just alive and active, and they preach to you. And that's exactly what we want to hear. I'm not picking on any church individual, but you see a lot of churches that spend the first minute or two of the message, they quote a verse, quote a couple verses, and then for the next 20 minutes, the man just gives opinions on what he thinks. I don't need more opinions of man. What we need is more of the truth of Scripture. Look here in Isaiah 55, verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. 
For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. See, you don't want my thoughts. My thoughts aren't the thoughts of God sometimes. My thoughts are the thoughts of a human being that has limited knowledge, limited intellect, where really you want the thoughts of the Lord. And so what happens is when you have teachings and preachings and studies built off of what a man thinks, not focused on the Word, you're not really getting necessarily what the Lord wants you to have to know. That's why it's so vital to make sure that the focus of the teaching is God's Word. Look at verse 10. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth and make it and bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth, that shall not return to me void. It shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. God's word doesn't return void. My points return void. Your points return void. God's word does not return void. I can sit there, and, and I used to do this with counseling, and I would sit there and talk to somebody. I would make all these, which I thought were pretty good points. They never got anything out of it. What I realize now when it comes to counseling and sitting down and talk to somebody, you let them vent for a little bit, you pray with them, you encourage them, then you give them scriptures. You point them back towards Jesus. God's word doesn't return void. You could be going through a difficult time, I could sit there, I could come up to you after church, I could put my hand on your shoulder, I could pray for you, I could encourage you and say, God's there, we'll get you through it. And that's encouraging, and I'll do that. But I'll probably also say, you know what, go home today and read Psalm 40. Because Psalm 40 won't return void. Now, for most of you, we just started this message 10 minutes ago. You don't even know what I said. If you'd close your Bibles up right now, you probably wouldn't know what chapter we're in. And that's okay, because my words return void. But I guarantee you, when we go through the scriptures out here on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night, there will probably be some verse that hits you. And that's what God does. My words return void, but the word of the Lord does not return void. It does a purpose. Just like verse 10 says there, just as the rain comes down and it makes the seed grow, when you are in God's word, it waters you and it grows you, and there will be something that comes out of it. And God says in verse 11, it will not return to me void, it shall accomplish what I please. See, this happens a lot with devotions. People come up to me and say, I understand I'm supposed to have a devotional life. I understand I'm supposed to be in the Word. But James, I get up in the morning and I read and I get nothing out of it. Well, first off, are you reading with an open heart and mind of realizing the Lord's going to speak to you? That's first off most important. But number two, do you believe verse 11? That's not going to be void. It's going to accomplish what it pleases. There's been times where I've gone through and I've read a devotional, I've read a couple chapters, and I got done and I said, Lord... I don't know what you wanted me to get out of this. I listened to a message, Lord, I don't know what you want me to get out of this. A day or two later, someone comes up, and exactly what the conversation was was the message and what I read. And I realized, Lord, I got it now. It accomplished what you sent. You were having me read, study, and listen to something days before to prepare me for what was going to be happening in a couple of days. God's word does not return void. That's why we put such an emphasis on the teaching of the word because we realize it's the word that changes life. It's the word that encourages you. It's the word that uplifts you. That's why we put such an emphasis on it. And it's not just us that did it. It's Paul that did it. Preach the word. It's James. It's Peter. It's John. It's the entire New Testament that says, be in the word. Why do we need to be in the word? Well, jump ahead to verses 3 and 4. We'll come back to verse 2. Because verse 3, for time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. They will turn the ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Because the truth of the matter is, false teaching is going to be rampant. I mean, truth, if you want your church to grow and you want numbers, the best thing to do is water down the message, make them shorter, make them full of just little examples and analogies and, and, and stuff like that, keep it simple, straightforward, do what I call cotton candy teaching, and, and people will come. But the truth of the matter is you will come, but you won't grow spiritually. Oh, sure, it'll taste good. Cotton candy is good. I can go wrong with cotton candy. But the problem is you can't eat cotton candy as your meals. Now, some of you may be thinking, I'd like to try it. Well, try it one time. But the point of the matter is you can't do it as your meal. You need a little more substance. We like it, though. 
And this is exactly what happened. Do you realize 2,000 years ago, God told Paul through the Spirit, this is what's going to happen. Do you realize how many churches are set up today that just preach what people want to hear? Itching ears. If you have ever had a scratch that need to be itched, you know how that feels. Just scratch it and you immediately feel better. Same thing spiritually. Just come into church. Don't tell me what I need to hear. Tell me what I want to hear. Let's just spend a half hour talking about what I want to hear and I'll walk away feeling better about myself. But the truth of the matter is you're not growing spiritually. I just have this envisionment of these type of churches of you almost see the pastor going up and it reminds me when you got the dog at home and you're scratching behind his ears and the tail is just a flopping and the dog's just panting and happy. dog's thrilled. Just scratch my ears and I feel good. Same thing here spiritually. Just tell me what I want to hear. And I feel good. That's not what we're supposed to do. It's not our job to tell you what you want to hear. It's our job to tell you what the importance of what you need to hear. That's why we feel and it's important to go verse by verse through the Bible. Is because there are certain times, certain teachings. To be honest, we'd probably skip over. This is a little heavier message. I'd probably skip this one today. I'd say, let's go back and do a gospel. I want to hear about Jesus healing a blind guy. That sounds like fun. That's encouraging. That's uplifting. Let's talk about that one for a while. But God says the whole counsel of God's we're going through Revelation on Wednesday nights. Just started it. Revelation's a heavy book. Certain chapters of Revelation are a lot of fun. There's certain chapters in Revelation where literally billions of people are being judged. It's not the type of stuff I really want to teach on. But the importance of going verse by verse for God's word is you get the whole counsel. See, some churches are set up with verses 3 through 4. We will tell you what you want to hear, and we'll just all be happy about it. There's a church around here that I, I visited one time doing some stuff, and as soon as you walked into the foyer, they had a stock graph of their attendance. You could tell that was their focus. Their focus was numbers. And so since their focus was numbers, that's what their church was built about, is being the biggest church. The focus out here is not numbers. We're not here to see the church numerically grow. We're here to see the church spiritually grow. And that comes from an example of Christ. If you base a ministry success off numbers, then Jesus was the greatest failure that ever walked this earth. Because by the time he got to the cross, everybody left him. In fact, anytime Jesus got a big following, what would he do? He would give a hard teaching and whittle some of those people out. In fact, some of the best passages that Jesus ever taught on were to one-on-ones. The lady at the well, Nicodemus in the middle of the night. Now, come on, Christ. You should be teaching to thousands of people. You should have a minimum of no less than 10,000 before you give a message. One-on-one time with some guy in the middle of the night? What a waste. But Jesus was not focused on numbers. He was focused on people growing spiritually. And that's what you get when you try to preach the word. You realize God will take care of it. Look how great this system is. If we do what we're supposed to do as a church, we preach the word, we instruct people in the teaching of the Bible, what happens is you guys grow spiritually. And as you guys grow spiritually, what are you going to want to do? Well, jump down to verse 5. Do the work of an evangelist. God will change your life through the teaching of the word. So therefore, you go out and you'll tell people about Christ. Their lives will be changed by the teaching of the word. And next thing you know, they'll start coming to church. That's the way it's supposed to work. Healthy sheep beget healthy sheep. If you are growing in your walk with the Lord, one of the outcomes of you growing in your walk with the Lord is you want to tell people about Jesus. Well, as you tell people about Jesus, next thing you know, you start inviting them to church and the church starts growing. It's not the goal of the church, but that's an outcome of hopefully a healthy church. In Acts chapter 2, when they figured out what was working, it says in Acts chapter 2, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. They taught the word. Then later on in that chapter, it says, the Lord added the church daily those who are being saved. That's what God does. You preach the word, just like Paul said, God takes care of the rest. I've shared this story with you before, but I will repeat it because it's a good one. Years ago, probably about 10, 11 years ago, I had a guy call me up and um, wanted to know about church. And you know, he, he knew a little bit about Calvary Chapel. He looked at all the different Calvary chapels on the map, and we're the only one that's located out in the boonies. So he called me up, 
and he said, now you're out in the country, right? And I was looking out my office window, and I said, well, the only thing I see are bean fields and cornfields. So yeah, pretty sure we're out in the country. He goes, can I come and talk to you? So he came out. He came from about three hours away. It was over around Akron area. Came over, and he, and he spent the day with me, and he said, okay, how, what do you do? And I distinctly remember this, and I'm not exaggerating this at all. He goes, what, what do you do? What, what's, your, what's your catch? I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, what do you do to have the church grow, to have, have success out where you're at? And I was, I'd only been a pastor for a few months at the time, so I gave the dumbest answer I could, which was probably the smartest answer I could. I said, I don't know, we just teach the Bible. And you know what? Twelve years later, I don't know, we just teach the Bible. I don't know what I'm doing. Don't tell anybody. I don't know what I'm doing. And so what it comes down to is you just do verse 2. You preach the word. You realize how simple that is? We get stuff out here all the time on how to grow your church. We, we can pay a price, and we can get, with this price, anytime someone moves into our area, they will, for, for, per address, we can get people's addresses. So therefore, we can get them to come to church. I had a guy that contacted me a few years ago, and I don't know how he was going to do it, but for X amount of dollars, he would come out to this church, and he said he'd guarantee that attendance would go up 20%. I don't know what he was going to do. But yet, the focus is on numbers. That's the way the world looks at it. I've shared with you before, anytime I tell somebody I'm a pastor, the first thing to ask is, what church are you a pastor of? I usually tell them. Next question they ask is, how big's your church? Because numbers, America, everything is bigger, everything is better. That's not New Testament theology. New Testament theology is preach the word and let God take care of everything else. Our focus is not numbers. Our focus is people spiritually growing in Christ. So therefore, we preach the word. That's what we're supposed to do. God's word is what would change lives and marriages and attitudes and hearts. I firmly, firmly believe that without a shadow of doubt. What are we supposed to do next? Look at verse 2. Be ready in season and out of season. There is no time off from being a Christian. Every now and then I hear people talk about, and I've heard them say this, they need to take a break from God. I don't really get that. In season and out of season. Now, there may be time where you need to get away for a little bit and take a break or, you know, have some family time, etc. But you never take a break from serving and ministering. You never do. We're already in season and out of season. I could give you countless examples in my life of where I was out of season. It was not the time where I thought it was time to make the call or talk to the person or minister. And God says, nope, it's the time. Lord, are you sure? Now? God says, now. Part of being an obedient believer is well, no matter what season of life you're in, you're ready to serve. Too often we put time frames on service. Lord, I'm available from 10 to 11.30 on Sunday mornings. But when I'm at work, I'm at work. You know, It's not time to focus on God. When I'm taking care of the family, I'm with the family. It's not time to focus on God. In season and out of season, one of the things that we pray anytime we leave the house as a family is, Lord, just keep us safe, safe travels, and Lord, give us opportunities. Open up doors of ministry. You never know when there's an opportunity to share the gospel of Christ. There is not time off from being a Christian. Now, some of us, though, when we're out of season, it's tough. You sit here on a Sunday morning, and the next thing you know, Tony comes up and taps you on the shoulder. says, hey, we need help back in the three-year-olds. Like, oh, no, not today. Or you get a message from me. Hey, can you give me a call? I got an opportunity for something out there at church. Oh, no, not today. The out-of-season stuff is difficult. It is. And that's why one of my stories I like to share that I heard a pastor teach is, and you've heard me use this example before, but he went into a store with one of his kids. It was supposed to be a quick trip, long day. You know the story. Grab a gallon of milk, get out of the store. Well, he went into the store, grabbed his gallon of milk, ran into a gallon on the aisles. He was going through a difficult time, and next thing you know, you have a 20-minute mini-counseling session right there in the middle of the supermarket. God prepared, God ordained. Well, the son knew that the pastor was having a rough day. He knew it was a long day. He knew the dad was tired. He just wanted to go home. So the son asked the pastor, Dad, were you just doing it? Was you just faking it? Was that a put-on? And the pastor's response was, it was a put-on. I put on Christ. Because that's what Christ would want me to do at that time. In my flesh, I was tired. In my flesh, I wanted to go home. In my flesh, I was out of season. But Jesus is never out of season. So I put on Christ. That's something that we need to remember. Remember, Paul's writing this epistle from prison. He's out of season. (laughs) 
The last thing he's probably thinking of and wanting to do is focus on the ministry of others, but yet he's out of season and he's willing to minister to people no matter what the situation is. And how do you minister? Look at these words. Your translation may be a little different. Mine says convince, rebuke, exhort. Convince carries the mindset of, of convincing somebody, correcting somebody, hey, here's an issue in your life, this issue is wrong, and let me tell you why. Convincing carries that idea of I'm going to share with you the scriptures in the background on why what you're doing is wrong and why it hurts you spiritually. Rebuke, you already know it's wrong. I don't need to convince you it's wrong. You admit it's wrong. I just need to go up and tell you I love you enough to tell you that's going to hurt you. I don't need to convince you of anything because you know it's wrong, I know it's wrong, God knows it's wrong, so I'm coming up to you in love to tell you that it has to be fixed. The last one, exhort, means to encourage. Now, isn't it kind of interesting as a church, as a body of Christ in America, we're really good at convincing and telling people they're wrong. We're really good at rebuking people and telling them they're wrong. But we really are bad at the encouraging thing, aren't we? My goodness, what people need most is encouragement. But yes, that's the one we fail in the most. As we've said numerous times, people know what the church stands against, not what we stand for. There are certain sins that are just acceptable in the body of Christ. If I get up here some Sunday morning and tell you that I struggle with alcohol or drugs, some of you would say, I've been down that path, James. I know what you are. I, I can help you with that. I can encourage you with that. Now, there are certain sins if I got up here and confessed to, some of you would be like, where can I find a stone? I've got to take this guy out. Sin is sin. And so why is it that sometimes when people get themselves caught up in an area of life that they shouldn't, other ones we're accepting of and encouraging with, or other ones, no. I tell you, sometimes those sins, I can't believe they did that. I can't believe she did that. I can't believe he said, I can't believe he's acting like that. We're quick to point out the sin. Maybe we need to go to that person and say, listen, God loves you and I love you. But you know what? That area in your life, that's going to hurt you. But I'm here to help you in whatever way I can. Encourage you. I mean, I keep going back to Jesus, the woman caught in adultery, caught in the very act. He's without sin, cast the first stone. Christ didn't downplay her sin, but at the same time, too, he then encouraged her. Woman, where are your accusers? Go and sin no more. He didn't hide the fact of her sin, but he said he was there to encourage. And how are we supposed to do this? Look at verse 2. With long-suffering, with patience. My goodness, Christians, we are the most impatient people in the world. Have you not noticed that? We understand the patience of God more than anybody. I'm willing to bet all of you sinned yesterday, and I'm willing to bet most of you have sinned this morning. And if you say you haven't sinned this morning, you're a liar, which makes you a sinner. So therefore, you've all sinned. So therefore, God has patience with you and me. He's not striking us down with lightning right this second. He has patience with us. But yet, as Christians, why don't we have patience? That guy's been walking with the Lord long enough. He shouldn't be talking like that. Listen, she said she's going to be a Christian, and that's the way she's going to dress and live her life? No. We lack patience so much with people that are work in progress. We're a work in progress. God has patience with us, so therefore, why do we not have patience with other people? And what are we supposed to do with these people? Well, look at the last part of verse 2. Teach. It goes back to God's Word. The reason you are here is to be instructed in the Word, to be built up in the Word, so therefore, when you go out into the world you can then point people towards Christ with God's Word. That's the way the system works. You come on a Sunday, we instruct you in the truth, we give you an opportunity for corporate worship, we give you an opportunity for service, we give you an opportunity for fellowship, an opportunity for prayer, we give you an opportunity to do those pillars of the faith, then you leave and you go out and then you spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the way it's supposed to work. But too often we come, we sit for our hour, hour and a half, we clock in, we clock out, we leave, and we say, God will see you in seven days. That's not the way it's supposed to be. Once we leave this place, and sometimes while you're even in this place, the focus is on the teaching and the encouraging and the uplifting. That's why we're here. The world needs this. The world needs Christianity like we can't imagine. They need God. And so therefore, this is what we're here to do. Our response to all this 
Verse 5, be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So you're here to be built up and encouraged to go fulfill your ministry. Now what's your ministry? I don't know what your ministry is. I know what mine is. Mine is my wife, my boys, and the church. That's my ministry. I don't know what your ministry is. You may work at a place that has a lot of non-believers. Well, right there's a good ministry. Be a light and a witness. You may work at a place that has a lot of believers. Right there's a good ministry. Encourage them. You may have unbelievers in your household. You may have an unbelieving spouse. You may have unbelieving kids. I don't know. Wherever you're at in life, you have a ministry. Your ministry may be teaching a Bible study, maybe serving, working on the worship team. I don't know. You have a ministry. So the first thing, working backwards, verse 5, is fulfill your ministry. Find out where God's called you to serve and then go do it. If you don't know where God's called you to serve, that's step one. After making sure you're born again and saved, I should say. It's, Lord, what do you want me to do? Because, once again, back to verse 1, if we believe that we are going to stand before God and give an account, then by golly, verse 5, when I stand before Christ and Christ says, James, did you fulfill your ministry? I don't want to sit there and say, you know, Lord, that's a really good question. Because I wondered what my ministry was. So if you could tell me what my ministry is now, I'll go back and do it. No, he's going to ask me, did you do it? Did I fulfill what he had given me? What spiritual responsibilities did God give me and did I fulfill the ministry that God gave me? What's the greatest ministry of all? We'll work backwards. Do the work of an evangelist. Now, there's a gift of evangelism. That is a gift. But everybody is called to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the most life-changing thing that we can ever imagine. Have you ever noticed how easy it is to talk to somebody about anything else other than God? I just had a situation recently at her church where we had a uh, wedding, and there's a bunch of people. And obviously everybody knows I'm the pastor because I'm the one doing the wedding. And so there was a, a family member here, someone I've never really met before. We happened to be sitting after the wedding, and they were taking pictures. And um, she tried to make small talk. It just doesn't go. It doesn't flow. Okay, Lord, is this an opportunity to share? Talk about the church. It just it doesn't go. So you have that awkward small talk of trying to find this thing. And suddenly he looks at me. He goes, do you like sports? I said, yeah, I like sports. He goes, you a college football fan? I said, yeah, I like college football. And this was actually just yesterday. And he goes, yeah, some good games today. And I said, oh, yeah, you know, Oregon and LSU was going on tonight. And you got Boise State and Georgia. And next thing you know, we have a five-minute conversation about meaningless Boise State and Georgia and LSU and Oregon and all this other type of stuff. And then you sit there and you get down with the conversation and we shake hands and we smile and we see each other throughout the rest of the evening. And then you walk away and you go home and you think, wow, that was really meaningless. But yet, isn't that what we do in the world? You meet somebody you never met before. What are you going to talk about? Where you work and the weather. Isn't that what you're going to do? I guarantee you're going to run into somebody today that you don't know real well. Boy, glad it's not so hot. I know. Do you see the temperatures tomorrow? It's only supposed to be in the 70s. I know. It's going to finally be nice. <laughs> what? That's great. Jesus loves you. You know, I mean, this is what we do. And so when it says, do the work of evangelist, Paul is trying to say, no, just listen. I'm not saying every single person you run into, you say, have you accepted Christ as your Lord and personal Savior? But you look at each opportunity as, Lord, I really want to spread the gospel. Lord, give me opportunities to spread the gospel. Every day when you get up, Lord, give me an opportunity to just encourage someone spiritually. That, that, that's more important than anything. Why is it so tough to do? Jump back at verse 5. Endure afflictions. Because life is tough. Life is really tough. We just did a message, oh, what was it, about three weeks ago here in 2 Timothy, all about suffering. Some of us don't handle suffering real well. And when we start to go through difficult times in life, we throw God on the ultimate back burner. Well, how can a God of love allow this to happen to my life? How can a God of love do this? Or why should I focus on the Lord if everything is just going to go bad? You've got to endure afflictions. And this should not be a shock to us. I sometimes think God sits up there in heaven and shakes his head saying, Come on, guys. I told you it was going to be tough. Look back in chapter 3. Look at verse 12. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now, is that not straightforward? I mean, are they really trying to hide something here? 
There is no fine print in Christianity. There is none. God said from the beginning, oh, by the way, when you accept me as your Lord and Savior, it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. We've said numerous times, if you want the easy way to be friends with everybody, don't become a Christian. If you want to be friends with everybody, don't become a Christian. Because as soon as you become a Christian, you're automatically saying, I believe Jesus is the only way to heaven, so therefore, if you do not accept Christ, you are going to hell. Now, you may not be verbally saying that, but that's what your belief system is. Well, I really don't know if I believe that. Well, then you're not a Christian. Christian means follower of Christ. That's what Christ taught. Well, I want to be the happy God person that just loves everybody. Well, God does love everybody, and that's why he sent Jesus Christ down to die on the cross for their sins. So, you're going to endure afflictions. So, which takes us to our last phrase in verse 5. Be watchful in all things. Some of your translations say be sober in all things. That word literally means be stable. It carries the, the imagination of somebody getting into a stance. Like they know they're going to get rocked. So they get themselves in a stance. They ready themselves. They, they solidify themselves. They're stable. So therefore, when the tough things of the world hit them, they're solid on Christ. Try to come push them over? You can't push them over. Why? Because you're going to endure inflictions. Because you're an evangelist. Because you have a ministry, you're going to get rocked left and right. I'm telling you right now, some of you are going to leave this building today, and you're going to get hit hard today. Or if not today, you're going to get hit hard tomorrow. If not tomorrow, you're going to get hard this week. That's not being a pessimist. That's being a realist. You are going to have a tough day coming up. Now, the question comes up, are you stable in your walk with Christ to be able to handle that? Because if you're stable in your walk with Christ, you can handle those bumps and bruises that come along the way. Because you're stable. You're solid. You're ready. It doesn't make it easy. It doesn't make it fun you realize that through the difficult times, God is there and he's going to get you through it. There's no doubt about that. We all have bad days. We all have bad moments. That's a fact. Are we stable in the Lord to get us through it? That's what it comes down to. Which takes us then to our last few verses here. Paul has said in verses 1 through 5, you're going to stand before Christ. So therefore, preach the word. Stay strong, in season, out of season, correct, rebuke, convince, encourage. Watchful in all things, endure the afflictions, be an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, don't let the false teaching get the best of you. And now he's getting down to his final thoughts. He's down to the last 16 verses of his life. Look at verses 6 through 8. This is one of the most poetic descriptions of death. I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Finally there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. Not to me only, but to also all who loved his appearing. Paul says, I'm at the end, I know it. Wouldn't you love to be able to say, verse 7, I fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now that's a verse to put on your tombstone. That you kept it to the end, you endured to the end. That no matter what life threw at you, you finished the race. Finish the race. We had the boys do a little um, race yesterday morning, a little half-mile thing over in Bowling Green, and Elias wasn't feeling that good. He was kind of feeling rough, so he got about a quarter mile into the race, and I could tell he just wasn't feeling good. So I was running with him, and I said, you know, come on, bud, we're about halfway through, and he wasn't feeling good. So we finally turned the corner, and we had this big blue blow-up thing, and right on top of letters it said finish. I said, Elias, you see what that says? He goes, yes. I said, what's it say? He said, finish. So that's just got to get to the finish line, man. Just got to get to the finish line. And so you know what? He kicked it up and he got there because he saw the finish. He saw the end. He finished the race. See, I think that's what happens sometimes spiritually. As you and I get wore out, Lord, I can't. I quit. I'm done. God says, finish the race. Finish it. It'll be worth it. Keep the faith until the end. It will be worth it because once you see the end result, verse 8, the crown of righteousness. Wow. I don't want to stand before Jesus at the end and say, Lord, I did good for 90%. That last 10%, please ignore that. I want to finish the race. I want to stay strong to the end. I want to be a light and a witness in all that I do and say, Paul 
lived it. He's just not preaching it. He lived it. If this book was written from some uh, resort island of Crete right there in the middle of the wilderness, or excuse me, off the coast of Italy, Paul said, hey, I'm out here on the beach enjoying the sun. Stay strong. Uh, okay, that sounds good. He's writing this from prison. His death is imminent. His execution is coming. So when he says these words, he's not just saying it. He means it. Look at verse 6 one more time. The time of my departure is at hand. Now, this is where our English language is really kind of weak. Because that word departure, that's a good word, but it's not as strong as it could be. Give credit where credit's due. I found a great commentary on this from a book called The Believer's Bible Commentary. And to describe this word departure, how it has four distinct meanings. Look at these meanings of this word departure. The first word of this word departure was a term that sailors used to mean to let go of the anchor. The second term was a term that farmers used to mean to take the yoke off of an animal. The third term was a term that travelers used to mean to take their tent down. And the fourth term was a term that philosophers used to mean that they found the solution to the problem. Now put this on a spiritual example. First one, sailors use this word departure to say they let go of the anchor. Isn't that a great picture of being done? You're, you're anchored to this world. When your time for your departure is there, you can let go of the anchor. You get to go home. You're free. You're no longer tied down to this world, just as you know the Morris family is up there singing that song. And you start thinking about that, that there is no more tears, there's no more sadness, there's no more pain. The anchor has been let go. I can just go home. I can depart. I'm no longer tied down to this world. The next one there, the idea of the farmer taking the yoke off the animal. Your work is done. Your yoke is being taken off. The work is done. You're no longer weary, no longer tiring. It feels good to be done. I used to work at a job where you wore these work boots all day. One of my favorite things was to get home and you finally sit down and you untie those boots and you just take those boots off. You feel like it's done. Spiritually, when I depart, it's like God taking this yoke off of me. Just, hey, you're done now. You don't have to work anymore. Next one there, number three, striking the tent. Now, we, we joke about this a lot. The Bible refers to your body and my body as a tent. Labor Day weekend, a lot of people were out camping, right? Fun to go stay in a tent for a couple of days. No one wants to live in a tent their whole life. You go camping for a couple of days, and by the time you're done camping for a couple of days, it's nice to go home to a furnace, an air conditioning, and indoor plumbing. You have that. Well, the Bible says your body's a tent, my body's a tent. The Bible says there's a mansion waiting for us. Now, just stop for a second. We fight death so much. Lord, I want to stay in this tent. Why? My time for my departure is at hand. There's a mansion waiting for me? Probably a mint on the pillow? Why, why would I want to stay in the tent? I'm ready to go home. Last one. The philosopher, they have the answer. How much time do we spend down in this world talking about why? Why, Lord? Why did a God of love allow this to happen in my life? Lord, why did this happen? Why did this? All these why questions that we sit here and we try to figure out the answers to why, where we just studied in Isaiah 55, God's thoughts are not my thoughts. He's smarter than me. But yet, when I depart and I go to heaven... I have the solution. I have the answer. I just look into the eyes of Jesus and it all makes sense. So, when Paul says, my departure is at hand, that carries such a deep meaning. The anchor is let loose, I'm free. The yoke is off my shoulders, I no longer have to work. My tent is being taken down, and now I have my mansion. And now all my questions are being answered. So when Paul says, my departure is at hand, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I've kept the faith. And then he reminds us one more time in verse 8 that we will stand before the judge. And now all makes sense. Lord, we want to be focused on you. You. And these, if we truly do believe that time is short, you know, we're going through Revelation on Wednesday nights, we really think that time could be short. If we really do believe that, then why are we not taking the most of every single opportunity to truly be an evangelist and witness in all that we do and all that we say? I encourage you every day when you get up in the morning, Lord, give me an opportunity to show love. Give me an opportunity to encourage. And to be quite honest with you, 
Sometimes it's not as complex as you think. Sometimes God says just show love to your spouse. Sometimes God says just encourage your kids. So keep it simple. Preach the word and realize that God honors that. And the rest just comes into play after that. If they want to come up for the final song. Next week we'll finish up our study in 2 Timothy. And uh, it's a good one. A lot of fun stuff next week as we get to Paul's final comments here on his life. I just encourage you, stay focused, preach the word, be an evangelist. Make a difference where you live, where you work, where you go to school. Boy, there's people out there all the time that you can be a light and a witness to. And boy, God's blessings on you as you do that. We'll let them close with the final song. We'll have a word of prayer.